Well, good morning, everyone. Have you noticed something in the auditorium? We, yeah, we can see you. We can see each other. Uh, big, big thanks to Miss Julianne Brown that we had and her volunteers for getting our lights fixed. Uh, a few months ago, we had a business meeting in here and folks were saying, uh, we can't see the slides, we can't read the writing on the docs very well. Can you turn on the lights? And we had to tell them they are on. <laughs> so this is how it's supposed to look in here. Now, um, by the way, I told this to first service, I'll tell the same thing to you guys. Uh, many years ago, before I was diagnosed with sleep apnea, um, I was sitting right back there towards that exit with my family, and the sermon was boring. And I fell asleep. Now, the bad thing was not falling asleep. The bad thing was when I woke up, I snorted. <laughs> so everybody immediately looked at me, so what I'm telling you this, what I'm telling you this is for this reason. Uh, if you do fall asleep, don't snort. Because now we can see you. All right. Let me invite, invite you to go in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. We're going to be continuing our series called Things Getting Real as we continue looking at Romans chapter 12. And we're going to call this message this morning, How to Serve Jesus. How to Serve Jesus, Romans 12, and we're going to look at verses 3 to 8 in just a moment. Uh, before we get into the message, uh, let me tell you just a short true story. When I was in junior high, so this is going back quite a ways, my mom did not want me to starve, so she taught me how to make spaghetti. And I have probably made spaghetti. There will be a picture that if you haven't seen it, you will see it. That's my spaghetti that's photographed. And I have probably made this dish literally hundreds of times. Well, Linda and I have been married for just a few months and sadly my beloved does occasionally get migraines and they can be bad. And so she was in the bedroom taking a long nap, and I decided, being the good husband that I am, of course, I'm gonna make her my spaghetti. But there was only one problem, and that is to do the recipe that I do, I have to have a particular kind of pre-prepared sauce, you know, the powder stuff. And we didn't have any. But I thought, I've made this recipe lots of times. I'll just make my own sauce. Something went wrong. Uh, two clues, something went wrong. First of all, I was cooking it in the kitchen and Linda comes out of the bedroom and says, what is that horrible smell? And the second was the ground cloves that I dumped in. I went and got dinner at Taco Bell. Now, what does that have to do with uh, our text, with the sermon? It's just this. Just as there are right ways and wrong ways to serve a meal, so also there are right and wrong ways when it comes to serving Jesus. 
You know, sincerity and good intentions do not necessarily help. I was sincere and I had the best of intentions when I added the nutmeg, the saffron, the pumpkin spice, the cloves, whatever else in that horrible tasting sauce. We have to do things right also when it comes to serving the Lord. So the main point of the message, as we're gonna see, is this. To serve Jesus, we have to change our thinking about ourselves, about each other, about ministry. And I emphasize those three things as we're gonna see in these verses because if we leave out any of those three, we are gonna short circuit the whole process. Just as when we don't follow a recipe carefully and we go deviate from it, we can end up with something that's literally you cannot eat. So also when it comes to ministry, we have to follow what the Lord is telling us to do if we're going to be able to effectively serve him. Now, let's touch briefly on what Pastor Daniel shared with us last week. Last week, Pastor Daniel preached on Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. In verse one, one of the things that Paul wrote there was he says at one point, he tells us to remember the phrase he used, the mercies of God. The mercies of God that Paul was referring to was what God had done, what he had done through Christ when he saved us, and that is described in detail in Romans chapters one through eight. So when he says, remember the mercies of God, he's referring back to the wonderful work that God did for each and every one of us that we could not do for ourselves. Based upon what the Lord has done for us, we have to make a choice. And the choice is also in verse one, and the choice is present yourselves. In other words, dedicate, consecrate, Set apart ourselves. And by the way, the idea there, it's a decision. It's a choice. It's a one-time choice. It's also a command. It's kind of like the phrase, we burn our boats when we make this choice. There is no going back. And as we present ourselves, then moving on to verse 2, we make three ongoing choices in verse two. These are all things that we have to keep doing over and over and over again. They're all present tense. First of all, we choose not to be conformed to this world. Another way to translate that, we choose not to be conformed to this age, to kind of the environment around us. In other words, we're weird for Jesus in a good way, okay? That's an ongoing choice. Also, we make the ongoing choice to renew, to transform our thinking. You can't have one without the other. They go together. We become hardwired to think more like Jesus. And then the third ongoing choice, we develop the ability to discern God's will better, his perfect, pleasing will. We get a clearer idea 
of how to live in such a way to please the Father. Now that's all a foundation, all of that in verses one and two for what we see now in verses three through eight. So let's go ahead and let's read Romans 12, verses three through eight. Read with me, please. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think of himself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. All right, now, Let's be specific, let's look how our thinking needs to change based upon these verses. First of all, verse three, first choice, change our thinking about ourselves. Paul, his opening phrase there in verse three is by the grace of God. Now, he's not talking about salvation. Because a lot of times we hear that word grace and we think, oh yeah, that has to do with our salvation. It does. And he uses it that way earlier in the book of Romans. But in this case, he's referring to grace in the sense of God's favor that he gives to us in the sense that we can now serve God. Now, this idea of the privilege of the favor of being able to serve God, that was something that Paul himself enjoyed. As we know, Paul says he's an apostle. An apostle literally is the word means messenger, ambassador. He's a guy with a very important message and the message is simply that there is salvation only in Christ. And it was Paul's privilege as the apostle to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles, to have that grace to share that message. So for example, several years later, he wrote to the Ephesian Christians about this grace, and he says this. Of this gospel, this is Ephesians chapter three, verses seven and eight. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's what? Grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints. Why was Paul the least? Because he, before he became a Christian, tried to destroy the church. And then Jesus saved him and took that zealous Pharisee and totally turned him around. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, we gotta realize this, guys. Paul had not done one thing to earn the right to serve Jesus. And 
neither do we. All right? We are saved by God's grace through Jesus, and we also serve by his grace as well. It's all of God's grace. It's all of God's favor, unmerited favor from beginning to end. Let me show you scripturally how, you, how we can see this. Go with me for just a moment. Keep your place in Romans, but go with me over to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. We're gonna take a quick look at Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10, all right? Here we go, Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 8. For by this grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. By the way, gift there is also grace, charis. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now a lot of times we stop there. Because those verses obviously deal with our salvation, that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to earn being saved. But sometimes, guys, we should read one more verse. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship. We get our English word poem from that. We are God's masterpiece. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace, we serve by grace. And by the way, he doesn't really need us. He wants us, because he loves us, and he wants to see his plan, his will worked out in our lives because that's what we were created for. You know, think of next time you're, you're making a bunch of cookies in the kitchen and maybe you still have little ones like a little four-year-old at home or maybe you're a grandparent and you got this little, little toddler kid that's staying with you and they come into the kitchen as you're in the middle of making these cookies and they say, I wanna help. Well, you let the kid help. Do you need the kid's help? No. You know what's gonna happen. You're gonna get eggshells in the cookie batter. The kitchen's gonna get demolished. The cookies are gonna look like amoeba. But they wanted to help. All right. The key word in verse three is think. Paul uses that word four times. Let me show you, okay? This is literally what Paul dictated when he, wrote, when he had Romans written. Literally, this is what he wrote. Do not think more highly of yourselves than is right for you to think, but think with sober and accurate thinking about who you are in Christ. Is he kind of trying to emphasize something you think? Yeah, okay, great. We're supposed to think about what we're thinking about. So what's supposed to guide our thinking? Look back at verse three, very end of the verse. Each according to 
the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's it. What's to guide our thinking? The measure of faith. Great. What does that mean, Vance? Okay. Measure of faith has two ideas. Let me just share them both with you because they both go together. The first idea is measure of faith has to do with our salvation. We are saved by faith. Amen? Amen. And we are all saved the same way, only solely through Christ. That's the reason why Acts 4.12 We're told there there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which they must be saved. But the circumstances and the paths God uses to save each of us is different. We gotta realize that. Sometimes we make the mistake that, well, I came to the Lord this way, so that, therefore somebody else has to come to the Lord the same way. No, they don't. Case in point, I became a Christian when I was about 11 years old. It was not at this current church location. It was at the old church, which was in East Bakersfield on Monterey and King. And I remember the pastor, Jack Peacock, I forgot everything else in the sermon, but this is what I remembered. He said that the only way to go to heaven was to accept Jesus as my Savior and Lord, ask him to take away my sins. If I didn't do that, I would go to hell. That got my attention. I didn't want to go to hell. I wanted to go to heaven. So sitting there in the pew next to my mom, being bored like I normally was, at that point, though, I suddenly became focused. I asked Jesus into my heart, I believe I got saved. It wasn't until a few years later that I got involved in the youth group that I actually began to grow in my faith, but that was the moment of decision. Now, my father, which some people in this church remember my father, he did not become a Christian until he was 55. And he became a Christian because he was in the hospital facing double bypass surgery in the early 80s when that kind of operation was a lot riskier than it is today. And he was scared. And my mom's foster mother, Helen Reisner, who had been a Christian for a very long time, she came in, she prayed with dad. Dad became a Christian there in that hospital room down in Los Angeles. I remember after he survived that surgery and a follow-up surgery, and he began to come to church, this particular church, with my mom, and they were serving communion, and they used to go pew by pew by pew to serve it, and my former youth pastor, who knew my dad quite well, was going through, and he was just going through the motions, serving communion, and then he hears this, hi, Jim, and he looks, Vic, what are you doing in here? Because he knew what my dad was like before. God saves us many different ways, but it's always through Christ. Okay? So that's the measure of faith. Thinking. All right? What's to be the focus of our thinking? Paul's telling us we've got to think differently. So how do we do that? Well, 
Paul tells us quite clearly, for example, in Colossians chapter three, verses one to four. Here's what he writes to another church that seriously needed to change their thinking about Jesus. Here's what Paul wrote, Colossians three, beginning at verse one. If you have been raised with Christ, which by the way, every believer is raised and is in spiritual high places with Jesus. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, guys, we change our thinking by changing our focus. We focus on the things that are important and the things that are important for each and every one of us is the person of Jesus. Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, Philippians chapter four, verse eight, he says this, whatever is good, whatever is virtuous, whatever is worthy of consideration, he has a big long list of things that he mentions there, and at the end of that list he says, think on these things. Change your focus. Um, some of us may remember back long time ago, 1977, there was a terrible death storm that happened here at the southern end of our valley. Anybody old enough, willing to admit they're old enough to remember that? Okay. I got out of high school at North High for several days. Yippee skippy, I like that. But what was sad was the dust storm was so bad, it literally sandblasted the paint off of vehicles outside of my high school. A lot of people had to have their pools drained, cleansed with acid because of that. We did not. And the reason why we did not is my father came home from work, had already been running the pump, running the pool sweep all day, ran it all night, went in, scrubbed down the sides of the pool, rinsed out all the filters, kept it running, did it again when he came home from work, did it again the next morning. The reason is, is at the bottom of the pool was this much dirt, grime, and gunk. If he had not done that, our pool would have been seriously damaged. You see where I'm going with this? We change our focus, we change our thinking. How do we change our thinking? We change our thinking by what we choose to think about. We have to shift our focus. We think about things that are pleasing and honoring to God. We focus upon his word, we focus upon our walk, we focus upon our worship. And as we do those things, slowly and gradually, that gunk that has accumulated over all of those years before we came to the Lord begins to change. All right, so that's the first choice. We change our thinking about ourselves. Second choice, this is in verses four and five, we change our thinking about each other. Let's read verses four and five, Romans 12. 
For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Big, big problem that these Christians had in Rome and Paul knew about it, even though he had not visited Rome at the time he wrote this letter. But he knew, and everybody knew, that a big common problem the Christians had is they didn't like each other. Now, does this sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> Why didn't they like each other? It was because a lot of Christians were Jews and the other Christians were Gentiles. And Jews and Gentiles mixed sort of like oil and water. They didn't mix. But nevertheless, scripture was very, very clear that Christ calls us, called them into one body. And they had to learn to love each other. So Paul gives two important facts here. First important fact, based on those verses, is this. We are one in Christ. We're saved the same way. Spiritually speaking, we have the exact same pedigree. That's why Paul later writes to the Galatian Christians who were also struggling with loving and liking each other. He wrote this to them, Galatians 3, 26 and 28. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, spiritually speaking, the ground is absolutely level in front of the cross. So if we are to be all one, how should we treat each other? Jesus explains when he talked to his disciples and he's telling us as well. John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says this. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now this whole idea about the importance of love, we'll talk more about that next week because it comes up in the next section of Romans 12. But the second fact is simply this. We are very different from one another. I know, that's Captain Obvious, isn't it? <laughs> but we are. We are all still in Christ and everyone is necessary so let me just throw out some questions for us do all our Christian friends look like us sound like us about the same age as us vote like us have the same likes and dislikes as us because if those questions are true, we're in trouble. Because that's not what the body of Christ is supposed to be. Now, if I called Nate Parrish to come up here and join me, 
You couldn't find two guys that look less alike probably than myself and Nate. But I love that guy. And we actually have a lot in common. We're both weird. We're both cynical. But we also have Jesus in common. You know, all of those questions, look alike, sound alike, blah, blah, blah. What about our non-Christian friends? My, one of, in some ways, one of my closest friends, the 20-some years that I taught at my high school, was in the classroom next to me. I'm a Christian. I have certain political beliefs along with my Christianity. And the person next to me, she's a lesbian. Now, I'll tell you, that was a real stretch for me. And she never has come to the Lord. And I'm still praying for her. But my friend and myself, we were very different from each other. But I knew, and I still know, she needs Jesus. And the Lord died to save her, and she was made and created in God's image. All right? Think about, I don't know if some of you guys like to watch the film series, The Chosen. Uh, Linda and I, we love watching that. We actually went and saw the latest part of the series, went out to the movie theater and saw it just a few weeks ago. If you've seen that series, then you know that they set up some really interesting dynamics. Because of course, they're going a little bit beyond the gospel, just kind of presenting possible situations to us. Although frankly, there's nothing in the series that is against scripture. I will tell you that up front, okay? But one of the interesting dynamics in The Chosen is the disciples. Because the actor that's playing Matthew, and Matthew, if you remember, Matthew was the tax collector. And the Jews hated tax collectors. Not just because, you know, how we feel about taxes today, it's because a tax collector in Roman times was a collaborator with the Romans, and the Romans were the oppressors of the Jewish people. So basically, if you collected taxes for the Romans, you would sold out your own people. And Matthew was despised. Matthew also, the character, he's a bit autistic. He doesn't handle social situations very well. And then you have this other disciple, who comes to follow Jesus, and his name is Simon. Now, I'm not talking about Simon Peter. This is Simon the Zealot. Zealots killed Jews like Matthew. Because zealots would slit the throat of any Jew that tried to help the Romans. They felt that was their God-given role, was basically to purify and to cleanse the nation. And here's Matthew, and here's Simon. What they had in common was Jesus. And that's all they needed because they were part of that community of the 12 uh, that Jesus had called out and was remaking and would eventually become the apostles, except for Judas Iscariot, but the rest of them would be faithful followers of Jesus. Men very, very different from each other. Third choice, we change our thinking about ministry. All right, let me show you. Let's take a look. Start reading now at verse six. 
Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us sit on them. If you fell asleep, I just caught you. Let's try this again. Read with me, verse six. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Okay. Ministry, please hear me, because a lot of times this sounds like white noise and it should not be that. We have to hear this. Ministry is something all of us do. It's not just for the professionals. Okay, I will say it again, Daniel, thank you. It's not just for the professionals. There used to be this idea, and sadly it's still around, it's called the 80-20 rule. And the 80-20 rule was basically the idea that 20% of the people in the church do 80% of the work. Which explains why a lot of times people in church, so many of them are so tired. Because they're doing far beyond what they're supposed to do because everybody else is sitting on their blessed assurances. The place of leaders, like somebody like myself, like Pastor Daniel, like Pastor Mark, our place, according to Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 to 13, is to equip God's people to do ministry. That's our role. Ministry is something that we all do but we need to have people train others for ministry. This is one reason why we constantly harp on everybody about get involved into a group because so much ministry happens within that small group environment that simply cannot happen in a large group like what we have here on Sunday mornings. Both are needed, okay? Both are needed. We need the large group gathering, but we also need the small group too. So, Paul's second point is be faithful and honorable in how you, you know what, let me, I'm gonna hold off on that second point for a second. Let me go back to my first point, okay? Ministry is something we all do. Years ago, at the old church, we tried to start a deacon's ministry, and I'll just tell you up front, it flopped. It never got off the ground. And I know because I was one of the guys that they slapped the label deacon on me. And the reason why it flopped and never got off the ground was because nobody bothered to train us to be deacons. We had one meeting, the pastor at that time handed us a little you know, handout, said, okay guys, go to it. Go to what? <laughs> do what? What do we do? All right, fast forward. This year, very shortly, we are going to have a bunch of people serving our church effectively as deacons. And a deacon, by the way, is simply somebody who comes alongside and helps the elders of the church to provide pastoral care within the church body. Deacons do things like arrange meals, 
Deacons do things like visit people in a hospital. Deacons do things like help others with their ministry. Lots and lots of things. It's absolutely necessary and we desperately need them. What the difference is, is that we have taken the time to equip these people for ministry. Paul's second point, first point again, is whatever gifts, whatever resources, whatever abilities, whatever opportunities God has given us, use them. Second point, be faithful and honorable in how you use your gift. We do not want to be like, sadly like the Christians in Corinth. Because one of the problems those Corinthians had, and we can see it in Paul's first letter to them, 1 Corinthians, is they were totally messing up with how they were using their gifts. That's one reason why Paul wrote that chapter. We call it the love chapter, and it's a great chapter of scripture. But in the context, they were so wrapped up in doing all the things, their gifts, they had forgotten that all those gifts needed to be exercised in love. So we need to be faithful and we need to be honorable in how we use our gift. And to drive that point home, Paul lists very quickly here seven gifts. Now, by the way, this is not a complete list. There's also gifts listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's gifts listed in 1 Peter chapter 4. None of them is a complete list in and of itself. But nevertheless, Paul's giving us an idea of how these things are supposed to work. So let's take a look quickly at the list. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, big debated issue, and I don't have time to get into it now, about whether the gift of prophecy is still around or not, all right? Don't want to get into that. I just want to tell you this. Prophecy in scripture involved, first of all, explaining God's will in a given situation. Sometimes it involved predicting the future, like for example, a prophet named Agabus does that at least twice in the book of Acts. Sometimes a prophet simply said, this is where we're messing up, this is where you guys are messing up, you need to get right with the Lord. That's a lot of times what you see the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah doing and other prophets in the Old Testament. But the point is this, whoever's doing this gift, does it in proportion to literally the faith. I know it says our faith, but what Paul wrote was the faith. In other words, who cares what this person says if it doesn't, if it's not backed up by scripture? If it doesn't reflect what the Bible actually teaches, throw it out. All right, let's go on. If service, that's by the way, the same word we get deacon from, although all kinds of service, services are involved in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. That's my main gift. But, Lord willing, I'm looking forward to the day when somebody is gonna get up in front of our church and do this far better than I ever dreamed of. And I believe that's gonna happen because we need to equip people for ministry. The one who exhorts, you know who's a great exhorter? Daniel. Kind of gets on your nerves though, doesn't he, sometimes? 
that's what an exhorter does. An exhorter, it's the same word that we get paraclete from. It's one of the, it's the word, the verb used to describe the Holy Spirit. An exhorter comforts, consoles, and confronts. And by the way, sometimes exhorters do this in a large setting like this, and sometimes they do it one-on-one or in a small group. That we call counseling. But guess what? It's a lot of exhortation. Let's keep going. The one who contributes in generosity. When Paul wrote, it's translated generosity here, but guys, it can also be translated simplicity. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, giving or contributing, I hope you realize that's not just money. That involves talents, that involves opportunities, that involves resources, because the gift of giving can be done all kinds of ways. But when it's done, it's done generously, and secondly, it's not done with any ulterior motives. It's open-handed, not expecting anything in return. That's simplicity. The one who leads, that could be translated also president. We'll move on on that one. The one who leads with zeal or diligence. In other words, somebody who's a leader doesn't just simply bark out orders. They are the one who comes alongside as a servant leader. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Can you do an act of mercy without cheerfulness? You better believe it. Somebody who does an act of mercy and says, you know, here you go, here you go, uh, you know, be blessed to the Lord, and they never tell their face to, you know, they're doing something good. They have a sourpuss attitude. That's not how mercy is supposed to be practiced. Because the person who does this gift the way it's supposed to be done knows that Jesus himself said, if you do it to the least of these, you do it unto me. All right. As we wrap things up, let's go back briefly again to the main point of the sermon. To serve Jesus, we have to change our thinking. In other words, Jesus loves us too much to leave us the way we are we become a work in progress, and one of the things that has to change is this thing up here, our thoughts. So with that in mind, let me just give us two questions, all right? First question, are you willing to come to him? You see, unless you know Jesus, none of this makes any difference to you. Because to even begin to have Jesus change your thinking, you have, you have to have a relationship with him. And you come as you are. And you invite him into your heart, into your life. You ask him to take away your sins and to give you a new heart. Are you willing to come to him? And secondly, are you willing to change for him? You see, for us to be useful to Jesus, we can't be 
the kind of people we used to be. He has to work a change in us to remake us, remold us, reshape us so that we can be useful for him. And by the way, it can be difficult, but he always does it in love because he knows what's best for us. So are you willing to come to him? Are you willing to change for him? Now, we're gonna have a time as Rachel plays for folks to come forward for prayer, whether it's in regard to something in the message or something else, I'm gonna encourage you to come forward as the Lord leads.